Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Jules Journal International Law Podcast Series. My name is Ur Hekim and I will be relaying a number of podcast sessions published by Jules Gantim International Law Association. Uh, the podcast will not, will not only be for international law practitioners, but also for young professionals and change makers from diverse backgrounds and specializations worldwide. And we will be talking all aspects of international relations in the era of globalization. Now, before we start, it may be useful for our listeners to note that we are planning to keep our podcasts as short as possible, around 10 to 15 minutes, for them in such a period to get explore not only the different career paths that have been taken worldwide, but also the opportunity to hear and learn about various hot topics in international law. And in our first episode, I'm really happy to have one of the leaders of his generation, a source of inspiration for many law graduates, including me, and a very good friend, Gunesh Univar. Um, Gunesh has been working as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center of Excellence for International Courts, so at the University of Copenhagen, uh, for almost three years, and he is also the counsel partner of a Turkey-based law firm. I will shortly ask him about these details, but first, welcome to our first episode, Gunesh, and many thanks for joining us in one of our international law podcast sessions. It is an immense pleasure to have you in our tape today. Uh, thank you very much. It's uh, my uh, honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you for your invitation and uh, your very kind uh, introduction. <laughs> Thank you, Gunesh. Uh, well, first of all, uh, you are here to share your experience and knowledge with us. And people who may be listening to us would be curious about your career journey. Would you like to briefly share with us how it all started and how did you end up changing three different countries and finally settling down in Copenhagen? Uh, yes, of course. Um, well, it wasn't, it wasn't really uh, as planned as it might seem, if it seemed planned at all. But it was mostly an improvised uh, track uh, to uh, an academic career by trial and error, if you will. Uh, I graduated uh, in 2010 mm -hmm. from Big Kent Law School. Um, and as is the case for many lawyers, uh, I immediately proceeded with my internship, this uh, one-year mandatory internship. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in the course of this internship, I have realized that this is not really what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. or not not precisely as a day job. Uh, and I started exploring in the course of my internship the alternatives, mm -hmm. uh, so how, how to use my legal knowledge, or rather develop my legal skills. Uh, and I realized that there's actually a very vibrant, substantial academic option mm -hmm. to what some might refer to as a practitioner option. And I eventually wanted to uh, test out, so to, so to speak, uh, this this path. And I went to Brussels for an LLM, a master's in law. Uh, and I did a master's at the IES. And the reason I chose Brussels is really a mixture of uh, personal and professional reasons. Mm -hmm. But eventually, after my master's in Brussels, I have briefly returned to Turkey, uh, and in that period, in that brief six-month period, so mm -hmm. to speak, I have been applying to PhDs because I had realized at the time that I really wanted to do a PhD. Yeah. Because the, the master's process was quite enjoyable, much more enjoyable than uh, what my internship period sort of indicated. So I 
decided that a, a, an academic career is much more suitable yes. for my career and what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And eventually applying to a, a series of PhDs, uh, Copenhagen University of Copenhagen was the most, uh, the bi- most viable, most uh, seemingly scientifically uh, satisfying option. Mm-hmm. And that was in 2013. I uh, got a scholarship uh, from the Danish uh, National Research Foundation here for a postdoc, uh, for a PhD. Sorry. Yes. Um, and after my PhD, which ended in 2016, mm-hmm. I have uh, obtained a what is called a postdoctoral research grant mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the Carlsberg uh, Foundation. And uh, that was uh, another two years. Now I have another year and a half as a postdoc here at the Faculty of Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the future sort of is a little uh, uh, uncertain in the sense that I do not have a tenure at the moment. But this mm. is a, a, a pursuit that I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm chasing at the moment. Exactly. Uh, so the idea is sort of to get an assistant professorship, or maybe something that will uh, allow me to further develop the academic skills and yes. go beyond the postdoc, mm-hmm. uh, settle in in the in the truest sense of the word uh, at a location at the university, and sort of try to be as prolific as possible. Yes. So that's basically what uh, what had transpired in the last nine, eight, nine years. Uh, mm-hmm. I hope it was it was brief enough. Yes, 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 it was. Uh, well, in terms of you know working environment, as you said, if you have that you know feeling of satisfaction of what you are have been working on for so far, I guess this is what we are all looking for in in our uh, career path. So so congratulations once again for that. Absolutely. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yes. And especially now that you are also counseling clients in your own law firm as well, are you kind of considering leaving academia and focusing on legal practice at some point or not? Well, not not really. It's uh, really a, uh, a secondary track uh, to the use of, of what I am trying to uh, to gather in, in the academic sphere. Yeah. It's just a an outlet to what I would... Uh, Mm-hmm. what I would consider the practice of international uh, arbitration, the, yes. the field that I'm in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really the main thing I, I, I want to do for the rest uh, of my days, so to speak. It's just a, uh, because because of the nature of this field, yeah. it's really difficult to separate it uh, distinctively between practice and academia, because what, is, what happens in academia influences the practice which it's the same maybe in every field but in investment arbitration or in general international arbitration it's a bit more vivid uh, that the the links between academia and practice are much more interlinked and intertwined so i think it's a mutually beneficial uh, uh, practice to engage in academic uh, research and the practice they sort of uh, inform each other yes. and help develop a much broader, much, uh, I hope, insightful uh, perspective on these matters. But the the idea was sort of, again, to, to put use to what I would like to do academically. So I think the bottom line is I would still would uh, like to be an academic mm-hmm. and to the extent possible practice uh, what I preach, if you will. So that's sort of the supplementary nature of what I do in practice. 
Exactly. Um, and many, many thanks, Gunesh. I mean, I'm wishing you the best in this long and successful career journey. Um, but now I'm sure our listeners would like to know more about your approach um, to the current developments on the reforms on international investment law, um, especially in its dispute settlement uh, dimension. I would like to ask, first of all, what was the idea behind when the investor state dispute settlement system was was first established? And, you know, what are the current challenges of the system? What would you like to say on this from from international law perspective? Um, what well, may be a very brief uh, yeah. uh, introductory note to people who may not be particularly familiar with what the field does. Yeah. Uh, so investment law, in its essence, uh, concerns the international protection of foreign investors in a in a country, in a host country, so a country other than their own, mm-hmm. and it uh, concerns a series of treaty-based uh, obligations, mostly uh, attested to states vis-à-vis the foreign investors, such as. Uh, expropriation or fair treatment of investors etc and the dispute settlement uh, procedure attached to this network of protections is mm-hmm. arbitration as it stands it's it's often referred to as isds or investor state dispute yeah. settlement yes and even though in its essence it's arbitration it differs significantly from commercial arbitration in its substance mm-hmm. uh, a commercial dispute uh, i think the assumption goes that it's between between businesses, therefore, it concerns those businesses maybe a small sphere of uh, third parties uh, through some acquired rights or some uh, expectations from that interaction or business interaction. But in investment arbitration, the question is a little bit more uh, uh, relevant to the public because these are foreign foreign investors uh, potentially conducting a public service uh, like waterworks, energy production, oil extraction, what have you, yes. activities uh, that establish an interlink between the state and affect the public much, much more than what a commercial business-to-business interaction uh, would imply. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it is uh, on the, the reaction I get from a lot of people, especially new students, when I say international investment law, the image that appears in their mind is usually corporate law or yeah. investments or more economic side of things. But here, uh, just for the sake of clarity, it is the protection of foreign investors in another country. Mm-hmm. And the whole international uh, framework is aimed at this. Now, this uh, introduction uh, sort of uh, is a uh, prologue also to, yeah. uh, to the reason why international investment law was first established, this investor state dispute settlement system was established, it was established, at uh, least on the paper, mm-hmm. to accord uh, some securities, international securities, to international investors. Uh, that when you read the articles and when you read the text, the preparatory texts, uh, from middle mid 20th century around the time when ICSID, the International Center uh, for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, was established, mm-hmm. the outset is basically the general uniformization of these international quote unquote rules, uh, mostly developed in the Western Northwestern Hemisphere, 
uh, and to make a coherent international legal system maybe akin to the trade system that was developing around the same time mm-hmm. and to make a multilateral framework for the uh, investment claims vis-a-vis the states. Why the states uh, sort of opted into something like this is uh, a more complicated question. Uh, maybe the first reason is, uh, this is actually explained really uh, really well in a, in a book uh, by Taylor St. John. Yes. A fairly recent book on the rise of investor state dispute settlement, focusing mm-hmm. on the history of exit and why states sort of opted into this system what were they thinking or what weren't they thinking, maybe more importantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that it seems uh, from this uh, substantial research in addition to, to Taylor's work is that the states signed up thinking that it would somehow in- increase the, the foreign investment flow to their countries. Yeah. And especially after the 90s, after the fall uh, of the Soviet Union, there is a sort of race to attract foreign investment, which has gradually intensified with the participation of new uh, members, more assertive members uh, of the international community previously, maybe sort of locked out of the world economically uh, as a part of the uh, Eastern Bloc. But eventually the states have sort of started getting into these agreements in in an unaware manner. Mm-hmm. They have started signing up and promising things uh, under these treaties, and it has turned into something that was a little uh, larger than what they thought yes. they had in mind. They thought these were just very perfunctionary, superficial promises and undertakings, but it turns out it's actually a very substantial system with very uh, important protections, substantive protections, coupled with a direct recourse to an international arbitration Hmm. Uh, eventually it has caused a significant uh, financial burden to especially some developing states yes Uh, so this is the essential idea but I suppose the the way that the states went about it was not particularly informed Mm -hmm. to give this international protection to foreign investors who are seen as important uh, actors in fostering economic development, uh, creating jobs in a country. So th- at the time, I suppose, the developing countries were in a, in a, in a desperate competition to attract this, um, more pushing in some countries than others, which caused a, a network of two, 3,000 uh, bilateral investment treaties mm-hmm. uh, and a various... Uh, controversial dispute settlement system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the current challenges that the system is facing, on the other hand, yeah. are really not that different from the initial challenges of the system, because mm-hmm. some of the foundational problems or foundational controversies still persist. And one of the most mm, foundational premise in that regard is why does this system even exist? I know this is a very existential question, <laughs> but it's true that a lot of people actually ask the question, why do we need a system which protects uh, a group of uh, privileged actors in the field? And sort of everything, every reform process, every uh, every 
effort to make this a more balanced system sort of uh, revolves around the idea to balance the protection of foreign investors on one side mm-hmm. and the protection or uh, the preservation of certain rights and entitlements and statuses for mm-hmm. the public and the state as you know the affected parties and the regulating authority so there there has always been this effort to, to balance things out and this could be the 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 the, uh, the, the common denominator so to speak of all these investment reform uh, objectives um, maybe uh, more mm-hmm. specifically that why don't we have an international legal system that has more responsibilities for investors? This is a question that the academia is currently mm-hmm. discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a few steps ahead of the current level, current phase of investment reforms. Yeah. Uh, but there are very deeply embedded existential questions in the, in the system that sort of put to question the very, very existence of this field. Uh, <laughs> But given the current popularity of the system, it doesn't seem particularly realistic to yeah. me, mm-hmm. at least in the short run, to sort of discard this system. So I think the, the, the focus right now, more realistically, has turned to reforming it, fine-tuning yeah. it as much as possible through yeah. some institutional uh, initiative. It's like ICSID or uh, UNCITRAL has a reform process going on right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is, I think the, the, the general, without getting too much into yeah. specifics and individual items, this would be a very brief introduction <laughs> to investment. Okay, it, maybe it wasn't so brief, but no. I, I did my best. <laughs> well done, Ganesh. I mean, everything is clear for me and I'm sure for our followers as well now. Uh, it became even clearer on my mind that, you know, the current needs of the investor actors are very diverse and the existing dispute settlement mechanisms cannot really respond to all those needs. Uh, Speaking of which, I would like to ask you now on the issue of the newly proposed investment court system under the um, Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement as an alternative to ISDS uh, to cover those needs. Uh, So let's start with the legal stand of this concept in international law. Um, Please correct me if I'm wrong that this CETA agreement was signed between the EU and Canada in October, on October 2016. And uh, one of the chapters concerns investments, and it co- contains a mechanism called investment court system, uh, which consists of a tribunal and an appellate tribunal to settle investment disputes concerning the cross-border investments um, within the framework of the CETA provisions. Um, so what actually is this concept and how do you assess this within the framework of bilateral and multilateral trade agreements? Uh, the investment court system is uh, basically a, uh, a ISDS 2.0. <laughs> I think in, at, at its core, that's what it is. Uh, but the intentions are actually uh, very good, I believe. The way that uh, the European... Because the investment court system, the ICS, as uh, we speak in the context of CETA, this is an EU invention mm-hmm. that sort of followed up uh, this new wave post-Lisbon uh, EU competence on uh, on these investment deals 
uh, under the common commercial policy. Mm-hmm. And the, the this is a, this is basically a 2.0, an upgrade from the EU's perspective to address some legitimacy uh, issues that the current ISDS system yeah. uh, has had allegedly, uh, such as inconsistency of awards, lack of transparency, the appointment of the panel members uh, because they're arbitrators. So, yeah. by the way, it works. In a three-panel uh, situation, for instance, two of the panelists are appointed by individual parties, and then the the the, the president of the tribunal or the panel uh, president is elected by these appointees. So, in a way, it's a private appointment system, case by case appointment system. Doesn't really have the the institutional future features that international court or a permanent institution would have mm-hmm. even in the exit arbitration uh, you still choose you or you don't have to but you are uh, encouraged to choose from a list of exit arbitrators mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily the case uh, always in an exit arbitration the parties are still free to choose whomever they want outside that list so you can say it's more of a recommendation in that sense. But in I, I, ICS, the, arbitra- the concept of an arbitrator, at least uh, on paper, disappears. We have members of the tribunal, permanent uh, appointments uh, on a rolling basis. They are appointed uh, ex ante to any arising dispute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there isn't any uh, perceived... Uh, uh, bias, I think, because the party appointment uh, is abolished. Of course, this creates another problem: is that the appointments are done by Canada and the EU, so the potential and future uh, parties to a dispute. Yep. So, in that sense, you can say that the only thing that changed is that now the investor cannot appoint anyone, but the states have completely repossessed that that uh, right to appoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, Well, it's also, it comes, uh, I think it's mostly in line with the idea that the states are the uh, engineers and creators of these investment treaties. And there is this playing field that the states uh, are often uh, allowed so that they can redefine these treaties. And I think in that sense, the idea that uh, these are not party appointed but only state appointed might create some uh, le- further new legitimacy issues in the future but it also will depend entirely on the uh, appointees their expertise mm-hmm. the quality legal quality of the decisions they give assuming there will be cases arising out of CETA uh, but the idea of an investment court system mm-hmm. As it as it stands from a more international, from a more technical international law perspective, is that it is going to be, or it's going to function similar to an international court that has a secretariat that administers and appoint administers cases, yeah. appoints judges, and uh, doesn't really give much uh, freedom in that regard to the parties, and has uh, very uh, explicit provisions on transparency, the hearings need to be uh, available to everyone, though uh, how how many people would actually watch these uh, tribunal, uh, uh, the the video casts, for instance, that there were some uh, 
hearings that were actually uh, streamed online. And despite all the outcry of public uh, access to them, I think there were only a few at the end watching them. But I think the idea is to make it available even at the end of the day, no one watches them. Um, so the ICS is trying to answer uh, a plethora of questions such as these. And uh, I think this also answers the question, the similarities between yes. ISDS and ICS is, yes. uh, in that sense. And the one difference, one additional difference is the appeal mechanism, of course, mm -hmm. that in, in an exit context there is, or in an arbitration context, there there's a finality of the arbitral awards. Yeah. So according to New York Convention, they're going to be, uh, they are to be enforced in these countries, save some uh, situations where states can refuse to enforce them. Mm -hmm. But here we have an appeal uh, <clears throat> phase uh, that comes after the first uh, phase. And in a way, it is marketed by the European Commission as a way to create consistency in awards so that the parties would be bound by incorrect awards. But of course, it's not just a procedural issue. It also has a lot to do with the substantive principles, exactly. how you how you define expropriation, how you define fairness. So uh, there are some uh, similarities and differences on the outset. But then again, a lot of these similarities and differences will be more and more apparent as the CETA ICS mechanism is actually used. And then it will reveal most of its uh, pros and cons much more empirically, much more uh, visibly. Yes, 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 yes. Perfect. Um, very enlightening and quite clear. Um, I understand that although it does not fully recover, you know, what are so-called foundational controversies, it may still be of help to balance the interest of both parties in this investment dispute. So it's good news, um, I guess. But let us now focus on the European Union perspective after, because there's this, you know, new emerging um, hot topic uh, that, you know, after the signature of the CETA by the parties, the European Parliament gave its consent to ratify the CETA on, you know, February 2017. But then, um, but the CETA is still not yet concluded within the meaning of the uh, the function Treaty of Functioning of the European Union, Article 2018. In particular, the provisions of Section F of Chapter 8 concerning the establishment of the mechanism for resolution of investment disputes, um, especially following the near-death experience uh, in 2016 by Wallonia region's threats to withhold consent through the famous Namur Declaration, uh, both parties probably felt trapped, right? Uh, do you think these concerns under the EU law, especially on you know, the autonomy of the EU legal order, um, are these concerns legitimate? And could you briefly explain us what could be possibly the future of um, the ICS regimes and similar regimes worldwide? Um, well, EU as a supranational organization definitely poses a very uh, unique context to this interaction between, uh, a, by definition, a domestic law, mm -hmm. as in EU law can be considered technically a domestic law for the EU itself. Uh, on one hand, and international law on the other, there's always this friction between uh, domestic law uh, and its uh, interaction with international law and how much international law actually interferes with the national law. So this is a very uh, common question 
so to speak. In the context of the EU, what's interesting is that it's a, it's not a state, but it's an entity that has what could pass as a domestic law system, and therefore there needs to be a certain check uh, uh, of uh, compatibility, and that's basically what happens. So this is not necessarily, at least uh, in the way that the, the, this controversy is structured, it's not that different from a domestic uh, Supreme Court hmm. uh, opining on par- whether or not uh, a, a particular international initiative is compatible with the domestic legal system. So just to put it in context that this is not really an out-of-this-world out of, out of issue, yeah. uh, that it's fairly uh, common. Uh, the, the impact, of course, of the EU is that the EU is uh, a very important uh, regional union, political, economic, uh, cultural union, at least that's uh, the idea behind it. Uh, and the issue that arose with the autonomy uh, in particular is uh, connected whether or not the investment uh, court system mm-hmm. undermines the functioning of the EU law. Uh, does it address certain concerns uh, and certain entitlements that, uh, that people within the EU mm-hmm. or people of EU origin uh, are uh, are entitled to, and whether or not this ICS system will create a an, a, an illegitimate parallel legal framework yeah. that will bypass this EU uh, law system. Mm-hmm. And these are all really connected issues that you know. It, but briefly going back to the existential issues, it's still it's still connected. It's still this uh, idea that why do we even have this legal system? is a, a, a question that drives uh, national, regional uh, governments, such as the, 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 the Wallonia region here. So it's it's a question that, that people and policymakers have in their minds. So why do we even need this uh, particular system? And does it actually undermine this uh, acquis that we are trying to uh, establish here in a coherent way? Uh, respectful to human rights, uh, adhering to the rule of law, democratic principles, etc. So the question, the preliminary uh, reference in that sense was, uh, does this undermine the EU's uh, foundational ideas? Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, this is a question, at least on an institutional level, uh, answered now with the Court of Justice uh, Opinion. opinion, Opinion 117. And the the outcome, the, the verdict was that it's not really a threat to the autonomy. Uh, now, this is a, a, it's not a very long opinion, but it's a very substantially uh, full opinion. So it's not really possible to go through maybe all of these yeah. uh, issues one by one. But there the, the, may be one issue to mention was does this go against the idea of, of equality within the Union? Hmm. Uh, that was one of the items that the Court of Justice opined on. And the idea is that, the idea was that are we uh, discriminating against the national or EU investors vis-a-vis Canadian investors in that regard, hmm. which would go against the this idea of rule of law that you give one remedy to a group of uh, actors and you do not extend it to another. Uh, well, the Court of Justice had a very uh, 
interesting twist there that might be a bit controversial even is that in the opinion there's a consideration of like situations yes. and the court of justice basically says the situation of a foreign investor a canadian investor in the eu is only comparable to an eu investor in canada mm-hmm. and these have the this equal rights uh, but you cannot really compare uh, for this or that reason a canadian investor in the eu to an eu investor in the eu yes. so that was basically the uh, the the idea behind uh, at least one of the items in this autonomy debate. Mm-hmm. So you can also see that the even this indicates, I think, the, the that the Court of Justice is actually quite welcoming to this idea of an ICS and doesn't necessarily see it as a a hindrance to the autonomy, uh, especially given that the ICS, these tribunals, are not expected to interpret the EU law or refer some preliminary, uh, make some preliminary references to the Court of Justice. So they won't be uh, uh, active participants in the interpretation of the EU law. Mm-hmm. So in a nutshell, that's basically what the Court of Justice said. Uh, with regards to other issues such as uh, appeal, I mean, there are a few... Um, uh, matters that the Court of Justice opinion sort of skimmed through and it, it didn't sit well with a lot of commentators and experts and practitioners uh, in the field. Um, but I do not necessarily believe just because there is a court that is parallel to the EU legal system or EU adjudicatory system, mm-hmm. it is against the autonomy. Uh, I mean, there are this is definitely not the first international uh, court or international treaty that the EU is or will be a party of. Uh, there are other international, uh, quote-unquote, parallel courts to the Court of Justice of the European Union that have controversially or uncontroversially found their place in the EU legal system and in the international law system in general. So the existence alone of these ICS uh, yeah. tribunals, I don't, I don't believe it's necessarily uh, uh, an obstacle to the mm. autonomy of the EU law. Yes, yes. So um, you say as long as they don't uh, really apply or interpret the EU law, a dispute settlement mechanism established under an international agreement can easily be uh, recognized and be um, have international rulings that are in, um, enforceable in the EU legal system. Uh, but that, that does seem to be the position of the Court of Justice, yes. and I really don't see any other reason. There can be political uh, yeah. concerns, of course. The, the Again, the, the very reason why these courts exist, you can always argue against that idea. Yeah. But the presupposition here is that we accept the existence of this uh, system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do we do with it is the real question here. Exactly. And some, some have criticized the Court of Justice opinion and the Advocate General Bolt's opinion before that as a bit political. But then again, it's uh, it's not surprising yep. in, at all that the, there is a political element, a political uh, consideration in those uh, disputes. Because also, thinking of the other side of the coin, what if the Court of Justice uh, released an opinion against the ICS? It would be a, a political catastrophe for the European Commission. And uh, in the reform efforts in the international uh, negotiations that are going on with uh, Mexico, for instance, yes. they would have to uh, amend the entire uh, 
dispute resolution system. I'm not saying this is a good enough justification, of course, to allow a legal system that may be uh, interfering with the autonomy of the EU law. Yeah. But uh, in the real, in the realism, in, in, in the in the reality of things, I think this also played a role. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Uh, I guess I guess we are on the same page on this discussion. And well, we have already run out of time. Uh, thank you very much for your deep and enlightening insight on the issues we have discussed in our first podcast, Ganesh. Uh, and I'm sure our next episodes will be as extraordinary, comprehensive, instructive, and entertaining as this one. Uh, we will be honored to welcome you again, either in another podcast or in another project of Chiskan Team. Thank you very much for your invitation. And I hope I did not blabber so much. No, 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 no. I, I think it was, it was quite packed. It was, it, it's really good. Thank you. And finally, I would, I would like to thank to all our listeners for joining our podcast session. We hope you enjoyed your time as much as we did. Uh, please do not forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And please do not hesitate to contact us for sharing your constructive feedbacks, further suggestions, and creative ideas. Stay tuned with Street Scan Team. Thank you very much.